I'm sure it hasn't escaped your notice, but ours is a very broken world. Creation is cursed, something we see every time there's a natural disaster. And our own bodies are cursed. And now because of the fall, we will return to the dust. And thankfully, Christ has come and in him we escape the second death, but we still don't escape the first death. And oftentimes that journey back to the dust can be quite painful. As we witness and experience sickness, we're reminded this world is still broken and things are not yet fully made right. Just think of all the ways our own bodies now break down and fail. Heart disease, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, a dozen types of cancer. Then there's a plethora of infectious diseases, virus and bacteria. We can't even see that can lead to a great amount of suffering. One that comes to mind is elephantiasis. This is caused by a parasitic worm that spreads through the bite of an infected mosquito. These microscopic worms lodge in the lymphatic system. Your lymph nodes are responsible for draining the fluid from your body. So when those break, your body fills with fluid, usually in the arms and legs. And so the skin painfully stretches and thickens and swells. Looks like an elephant leg, hence the term. This disease is impossible to hide. It leads to a grotesque disfigurement such that those who suffer from it are often ostracized. People recoil from them in fear. And then they're usually immobilized, just left to beg by the side of the road, often in poorer countries that have no hope and no help. When you see that level of human suffering, it it is heartbreaking. It should elicit your compassion, a desire to do whatever you can to help. But often there's only so much we can do. We're left with a bitter reminder that this world is out of order. Sin has wrecked all things and will continue to do so until that curse is lifted once for all. But we know we're not without hope. Christ has come. On the cross, he won victory over sin and Satan and death. We know that when he returns and ushers in his eternal kingdom, all the first things will pass away. There will be no more sickness or suffering or death. All will be made right. We certainly can and should do whatever we can here and now to alleviate human suffering. But at the end of the day, we find ourselves just simply praying, Lord, your kingdom come. Because we know that the the only ultimate hope for this world to be restored physically and spiritually is Christ. This is a painful but essential lesson to learn. And it's a lesson we will see pictured this morning by a person who knew all too well just how bad life can get in a cursed world. But he discovered Christ really is the only hope. He's the only one who can make all things right. This lesson comes to us this morning from a notable leper. And that interaction is found in Matthew chapter 8. So go ahead and open your Bibles if you want to follow along to Matthew chapter 8. It was two years ago, almost to the day, that we began going through Matthew's gospel, verse by verse. A majority of that time was spent in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's a landmark passage of the Bible. Of all the scriptures, the gospels are so special because there we get to see the the earthly ministry of the incarnate Lord. But amongst the gospels, the Sermon on the Mount itself is so special because there we see the greatest teaching of the incarnate Lord. So we were in no rush. But we have finished that up. It's time to move on. I want to quickly take this opportunity to to get back up to 40,000 feet and remind you of the big picture of Matthew's gospel as we enter chapters 8 and 9. Matthew is unique in that he records these five special sermons or discourses from the Lord. If you look back at chapter 7, verse 28, you see that phrase, you know, when Jesus had finished these words. Matthew uses that same phrase Five times, each time to conclude one of these major sermons or discourses. And we just finished the first one, the biggest, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The second major discourse comes in chapter 10, the commissioning of the 12. The third one, it it consists of the parables of the kingdom, Matthew 13. The fourth is a discourse on faith and forgiveness in Matthew 18. And the fifth and final one is a big one, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, and 25. So these five main sermons or teaching times that Matthew records. And in between them all is when he tells us about the works of Jesus, what he actually did. He focuses on these five teaching times, but in the middle, his actions, his deeds. And apart from his teaching, what did Jesus do while he was on earth? 
You can quickly flip back to Matthew 4, verse 23, gives you a little snapshot of that. Matthew 4, 23 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Especially during this early phase of the Lord's ministry, he was teaching and preaching and healing and delivering. Well, in Matthew 5 through 7, Matthew gives us the greatest sampling of Christ's teaching. And now in Matthew 8 and 9, he's going to give us the greatest sampling of Christ's healing. That's what we have coming up in Matthew 8 and 9. Just a rapid fire sampling of Christ's greatest works. This is like his greatest hits album. Jesus performed thousands of miraculous deeds, but in Matthew 8 and 9, he's going to pick on nine of them. He's going to record for us nine of his greatest miracles. Now, you should note Matthew is not strictly chronological in his record, and nor does he claim to be. He opts for more of a thematic arrangement. Some of the miracles of chapter eight, uh, chapters 8 and 9 almost certainly took place before the Sermon on the Mount, but he's grouping them all together just to present us with overwhelming force the authority of Jesus. And that's the point here. If you recall the epilogue to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. A key word there is authority. That same word shows up several times in Matthew 8, 9, and even into chapter 10. This is already foreshadowing the very end of Matthew's gospel, where a risen Jesus declares he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. After studying the Sermon on the Mount for so long, we're left with the same impression as the crowds. This is one who has all authority. But now it's time to see Jesus act with authority, to put that authority on display. And as he does so, he further reveals his identity as the divine Messiah, as the one who can make this world right. We most often focus on the spiritual effects of Christ's work, and and rightly so. He forgives us our sins. He reconciles us to God. He makes us born again. But don't forget that his redemption of this world is holistic. His work includes for us new resurrected bodies fit for eternity. And it will even include a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus not only has the power and authority to forgive us our sins, but also to remake our bodies and restore this world. And it is that power and authority is going to put on display in preview fashion in these next two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9. Uh, really, the, the punchline to each of these nine miracles is the same. But it's worth repeating, you should listen to Jesus. But truly, he is the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. You had better heed that authority. Listen to him, follow him, and bow to him as we seek to make disciples of him. Now for this morning, we're, we're going to walk through the, the introductory text of this new section. That's Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, the healing of the leper. This is the first of the nine miracles Matthew will record here. And as we'll see, it it deserves to be first and foremost because of of the profound object lessons it contains. There's a lot to see, so let's get into it. We'll uh, we'll read as we go, but I'll give you a basic outline to help you follow along. So starting Matthew 8, verse 1, we see first the curiosity of the crowd. The curiosity of the crowd. Matthew 8, 1, he says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Now, I told you last week we, we were done with the Sermon on the Mount, and that's true when it comes to the, the content of that sermon, but technically, chapter 8, verse 1 here, this is the real postscript to the, the whole Sermon on the Mount passage. Remember how that passage began, chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is more like a hillside somewhere along the sea. Uh, the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. He finds a level place. He sits down. His disciples gather around him, but a large crowd is following along as well. So, so they come in close to hear him teach. 
This was a time of much excitement and curiosity concerning Jesus at this Galilean stage of ministry. Again, back to the end of chapter 4, that's where Matthew gave us really the, the big picture snapshot of what's going on at this time. Matthew 4, verse 24, it says, The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So because of his miraculous deeds, people were streaming from all over Palestine to find and see Jesus. Anywhere he went, he attracted a crowd. Now on one fateful afternoon, that crowd got an earful. They saw Jesus go up this mountain by the Sea of Galilee to teach, and so they followed him up. You never know what you're going to see, so they're just following him. That afternoon, they didn't see anything. They heard him teach about the nature of the kingdom. But as that teaching time concluded, well, it's time for him to go back down the mountain. And that's chapter 8, verse 1. This verse really is that closing bookend to the whole Sermon on the Mount passage. This provides Matthew his opportunity to transition from the words of Jesus to the works of Jesus, which is what comes up now. Not surprisingly, though, as Jesus descends this mountain, verse 1 says the crowds followed him. This is not a small crowd. It literally says many crowds. This was a multitude of people. And they were like literally just following Jesus around. He goes up, they go up. He goes down, they go down. He crosses the sea, they cross the sea, or they run to the other side to find him. They're literally following him on the ground, but we still wonder how many of these people will actually follow him and become his true disciples. That is yet to be seen. For now, though, Jesus comes down the mountain after teaching. The crowds follow him. His ministry carries on. Chapter 8 really is is picking up where things left off from chapter 4. The news of Jesus is spreading all throughout the land. People are, are streaming to him. As we move on, though, it's time for us to leave the crowds with their curiosity behind. And now our attention here is going to shift and focus on a single figure, a leper, and one who has an intriguing confidence in the Lord. So secondly, verse two, the confidence of the leper. So get the confidence of the leper. Verse two says, and a leper came to him. And bowed down before him. Now, I don't think it's accidental that Matthew begins his testimony of the miracles of Jesus with a leper. Because to Jews especially, lepers were the most unwell and unclean people around. They, they would have just shuddered at the mention of a leper, especially one coming close. Now, this, this shock value is lost on modern uh, readers. So, we need to pause for a moment and remember or recall, like, what, what is leprosy? Leprosy seems like an ancient disease because we read about it in the Bible, but it's still around. In 2020, there were 120,000 new cases worldwide, although it is on its way to eradication as a cure that's finally been found. But the formal name of leprosy is Hansen's disease. It's actually a bacterial infection that affects the skin and the nervous system. It starts to show a skin irritation, patches of white skin form that are scaly in appearance. That's why it's called leprosy. The Greek word lepos means scale. That's where the name comes from. The poor uh, blood supply to these skin rashes can turn them into sores or lesions. They easily get infected and it can lead to some disfigurement. But that's not the only way leprosy affects people. Lepers, historically and today, they're known for being like grotesquely deformed. Most of them do not have hands or feet. It looks as if their nose, fingers, and toes have just like fallen off. Their appendages are reduced to mangled stumps. And you're like, how how does this happen? Well, leprosy actually works by killing nerves. It results in nerve damage such that people who suffer from it, they lose all feeling, usually in their appendages, They cannot feel pain or temperature at all. You might think like, that doesn't sound so bad. But realize pain is the body's natural warning system. 
And so what happens is that people who are infected, they injure themselves without knowing it. And these injuries accumulate. I mean, just imagine you're out working in the fields all day, barefoot, and you don't realize your feet are being torn to shreds. Or you're in a factory working with your hands, handling parts, and you don't realize these parts are scalding hot. Or maybe you you slip, you, you tear your Achilles tendon, but you don't feel it. It never heals properly. Now you find yourself walking with a limp, and you don't know why. There's like a million ways you could accidentally hurt yourself. And then with infection, which may not get detected for a while, people were in serious trouble and had received a lot of injuries that just compounded. But that trouble gets worse because not only was there a massive physical dimension to the suffering of leprosy, you probably know there's a huge social dimension to this suffering. At the time, especially, leprosy carried the greatest social stigma. Lepers were treated like like dead men walking. People would would literally run away from them in fear. Today, actually, about 90% of the population is said to be naturally immune to leprosy. But diseases and immunities change over the centuries. Historical records indicate in the ancient world it was much more contagious. There is no cure. There is no treatment. So the only recourse for them was quarantine. This explains why all ancient civilizations had leper colonies. And there are still many around in India, Africa, and China. Lepers were essentially banished from society. They're just left to live on the outskirts of towns just to fend for survival. Physical suffering, social suffering, and then for the Jews especially, there was a major religious dimension to their suffering. The lepers were basically excommunicated from the religious life of Israel. Leviticus 13 and 14 regulates leprosy and other diseases. If infected, a person would be pronounced unclean. And look, they had to be separated from the camp, from the people, to prevent the further spread of these serious illnesses. There was a way back. If If someone's ailment somehow was cured or healed, They could be declared clean by the priest and readmitted to society. But with leprosy, that that was exceedingly rare. Lepers appeared, for the most part, entirely hopeless. And over over time, the cruelty of man abounded. Over the years, rabbis, they added these additional rules to just make, and they made the lives of lepers even more miserable. They required lepers to stand 50 paces away from people at all times. If a a leper entered any public square, they had to announce their presence by shouting, unclean, unclean, for all to hear. If they entered a house, it was immediately contaminated. And for them, it, it was basically, it was okay to detest a leper because it was seen as divine punishment. If you got leprosy, the rabbis taught, you must have done something bad to deserve it. And so because of this, among the Jews, lepers did not receive much compassion. Physically, their bodies were wasting away. They were slowly but surely becoming more deformed and mangled. Socially, they were outcasts. When people saw them, they they didn't feel pity. They felt fear. And then religiously, they were despised. Fellow Jews looked at them with disgust, as if they're already damned. You can see why... Some have described leprosy as a living hell and a painless hell. Now, I give you all this background to help you just grasp the the reality, even the feeling of this text, because the original audience of Matthew's gospel, they would have known all too well leprosy and its effects, that the grotesque sight of a leper, the sound of his raspy voice as it affects the larynx, that the smell of his infected sores. They knew this. And even if they were moved to compassion, they would have known there's there's nothing they could do. You can't get too close because you risk becoming like them. I mean, it just takes one touch. That could be you. You lose your family overnight, your friends, your place in society. You lose everything. All this means in the original audience, they would have immediately felt just the tension and the shock of what's happening here. Verse 2, a leper came to him and bowed down before him. Just, just the approach of a leper would have sent them into fear. 
you, you can't let this leper get too close. He's supposed to stay, keep his distance. You can't get too close. This is dangerous. But we immediately see there's something different about this leper. He, he's approaching Jesus with some boldness. Remember, Jesus at the time was recognized as a teacher or rabbi. And no leper would dare approach a rabbi. I mean, the, the ramifications were huge. There'd be a backlash. He could be stoned to death right there for coming close to a rabbi. But this leper seems ready to risk everything to approach Jesus. Verse 2 says the leper bowed down before Jesus. It means lying prostrate. So his face is in the dirt. And then he calls out to Jesus as Lord in verse 2. You wonder, what does he mean by that? Sometimes Lord can just be an, an honorary title like Sir. Or, or does this leper, is he calling him Lord like, like Lord of Lords? Well, put a few things together. What could have possibly given this leper the confidence and really the audacity to approach a rabbi like Jesus in the first place? The answer is something he had never known before, which was hope. We saw back in chapter 4 during Christ's early Galilean ministry that he was healing all sorts of people. He walks into a town and like he cleans the place out. He just heals everybody in the, in the town. And all manner of sickness, a deaf, a mute, a crippled, a demoniac. People go see Jesus, they come back whole. There's no mention of leprosy back then though. Like somehow, some way, news of Jesus spreads and it, it must have reached this leper colony. They hear these, these rumors, these stories of this teacher Jesus who's healing all sorts of people. Could this be? And if so, could he heal a leper? That was not thought remotely possible. The rabbis taught only God could heal leprosy. It was so hopeless. But we know, obviously, this, this one leper got to the point where he needed no more convincing. He believed. Did he observe Jesus from afar? We don't know. But one way or another, we're going to see here, he became absolutely convinced Jesus had the power to heal him. So he hears Jesus is nearby. He's got to go. It doesn't matter the risk. He has to go see this Jesus. So he runs up to him and bows down. He has what you might call a, a humble confidence. A humble confidence. Look what he says in verse 2. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The way he phrases his petition is significant. He's not questioning, can you make me clean? That, that's obviously what he wants, but he, he states it as a declaration, uh, really a confident assertion. You can make me clean. He believes, and there's really no shred of doubt in that assertion. He believes Jesus has the power to heal him. Whether he's seen it or not, he's heard about it, and he believes he, this person can heal him. But beyond healing, though, you notice he doesn't say, if you are willing, you, you can heal me. He says, you can make me clean. Because for a leper, healing is just only the first half of the equation. Beyond healing, they need cleansing to be socially and ceremonially restored. They need to be cleansed. And somehow, this leper came to believe Jesus could do this for him. But at the same time, like he's making no demands. He knows he, he's not entitled to anything from Jesus. He's thoroughly humbled. So what does he do? He, he bows down before Jesus. He recognizes him as Lord. And I do think we have enough to put together that and suggest he is confessing Jesus as the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God. But without, without presuming or demanding, he expresses confidence in Christ's power. You can make me clean. There's just one thing this leper is not confident of. And that would be Christ's willingness so he states a condition. If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you're willing. That becomes obviously an implied question. That's what he's seeking. Like, are you willing? That question is not inconsistent with great faith. This leper has faith in the person of Jesus and the power of Jesus. But in proper humility, he's not presuming upon the will of Jesus. Rather, in true recognition of Jesus as Lord, the, the sovereign one, 
He's confessing his sovereign power, but then he's submitting to his sovereign will. It's like this leper is, without knowing it, putting into practice Philippians 4, 6. He's letting his requests be made known to God and then submitting and saying, what, but not my will, your will be done. Even with something like this, he's submitting his will to the Lord. What a picture of faith. This is a picture of a humble confidence in Christ as Lord. And this is still the right way to approach the Lord. Only now, we too have the same question in Matthew's gospel. Even so far, we already know, like, yeah, Jesus can do this. We believe from what we've read in Matthew already. He has the power to heal this man, to cleanse him. But now we're left wondering, is he willing? Does he, does he want to do this? Let's see what he does next. Verse 3, we see the compassion of the Lord. Thirdly, the compassion of the Lord. You, you know what's going to happen. Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. You just have to picture, what did Jesus see before him? This twisted, mangled, deformed man. Luke, the physician, in his gospel, says that this man was full of leprosy, indicating this was, this was an advanced case. I mean, his hands, his feet were probably worn down to stumps. Maybe his nose had caved in. Leprosy can cause the body to consume its own cartilage. Maybe his eyes were starting to glaze over. Lepers can lose nerve feeling and nerve sense in their uh, eyelids, lose the ability to blink, and can cause blindness. We don't know this. We don't see the picture. We just have this text. But we know that Jesus saw before him like the pinnacle of human suffering. And as a result, he was moved to compassion. That's something Mark's gospel, he makes explicit. Jesus was moved to compassion, a pity, a sympathy. This is where you experience like sadness and grief over the suffering of someone else. And that moves you to, to want to do whatever you can to alleviate that suffering. That, that compassion must characterize God's people. But all too often, we know that there's only so much we can actually do to lift someone's suffering. But not so for the Lord. He sees this man. This is one of God's creations. This, is, this was a man made in God's image. But he sees how sin has so seriously marred that image, physically, spiritually. Just one glance at this leper would be enough to prove something is wrong with this world. This world is broken. This world is not right. Now look at what sin has ultimately brought about when it came into the world. But you should know, like, this is why Jesus came into the world. He too would experience untold suffering and even death. But he did so in order to make all things new. And yes, his work of redemption would go well beyond the physical, but it would not overlook the physical. For the time being, the Lord saw this man just full of suffering, but also full of faith. And in that moment, there was something Jesus could do, both to lift this man's suffering, but also to put on display the the type of restoration he would bring to this world. Jesus was able, and he was willing, so he heals this leper. Now, before we consider the healing, though, I don't want you to overlook the manner in which Jesus healed him. In verse 3, it's not an accident. Verse 3 says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He did not have to do that. Jesus could have just healed him with a word. He could have said, be cleansed. In fact, the very next passage in Matthew, we see Jesus heal a centurion servant long distance with just a word. He doesn't even see the guy. But no, this time Jesus is clearly going out of his way to do what? To touch this man, a leper. That is enough to prove Jesus in this, in this healing. He's, he's painting his own picture. Before him, the leper, he, he's the ultimate picture of, of sin. How sin has broken, defiled, and wrecked this world. But in Christ's touch, he was painting his own picture of how he, and he alone, is the only one who can make things right. Who can restore that which is broken. Who can make the unclean clean. 
And keep in mind, verse 3 would have been scandalous to Matthew's original audience. It's unthinkable. You don't touch a leper. It's, it's the last thing you would do, especially like for a rabbi. They would have gasped. But now, like, you're unclean. Now you might be infected. Still, it makes us wonder, like, when was the last time this leper felt the warmth of human touch? But Jesus, we rather, uh, we can reason, he was compelled to reach out to touch this leper. Not just to speak his healing, but to touch him. Why? Why would he do that? Because he wanted him not just to hear, but to feel his compassion. He wanted him to feel that, yes, the Lord is able And yes, the Lord is willing. This leper, he's still prostrate. He's not looking up. His face is down. He's risked it all to approach Jesus like this. Then he he feels a hand on his shoulder. The word for touching really means kind of like laying hold of someone. Jesus is not afraid. He's not afraid to, to lay hold of him. And with this, just one touch, Christ's power went out. And what happened? Verse 3 says, rather straightforward, or, uh, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. That's it. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now look, that verse is so short, it's easy to just read right over it. Like, okay, I guess he's clean. But you just, just stop and think what this would have looked like or been like. We know from the Gospels, when Jesus healed, it was instant, it was exhaustive. He says here, this, this happened immediately. It didn't take time and Jesus doesn't stop halfway. So what would this have been like? Can, can you picture it? He's bowed down. Maybe he's, he's shrouded by his cloak, hiding. He feels the touch of Jesus on his shoulder. He knows something has happened. Something's changed. He looks up. The crowd reacts to his face, not because of his leprosy, because it's, it's back to normal. His eyes are clear. His nose is restored. His voice is young. He pulls up his sleeves. He's fine. He finds that his skin is, is back to normal. No more spots or, or rashes or lesions. More importantly, maybe he looks down. His hands have returned. His fingers, did they grow back? Everything that was lost has been restored. Everything that was damaged has been repaired. And he can, he can feel again. We don't know this. We don't know all these details. But can you just imagine that the shock, the bewilderment, and, and the joy of this leper. And as verse 3 says, he was cleansed. Again, all of, all of their diseases needed to be healed, but leprosy needed to be cleansed. Only by being cleansed could he see his family again? Could he pick up his kids again? Could he go back to work? Could he worship at the temple? Only by being cleansed could his sickness and his shame be removed. And that is precisely what Jesus did for him. Jesus was able and he was willing. And so the leper was healed and he was cleansed. That's not the end of the matter or the text because God's law gives a formal procedure for lepers to be restored and recognized as clean. And Jesus wanted him to both be recognized as clean and to testify of him. So lastly, we have number four, the confirmation of the priest. The confirmation of the priest. Verse four, and Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, there are several occasions where Jesus heals someone and then tells them not to tell. Don't tell anyone. And oftentimes, Bible readers are confused by these. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus tell someone not to tell? Isn't that the whole point? To let everybody know you're here. So, so what gives? Now, it is true. Jesus performed his miracles as signs. His wonders were signs of his divine power and messianic identity. It's just like John tells us at the conclusion of his gospel, John 20, 31. He says, these signs Jesus performed and many others. These were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Uh, Son of God. These signs were his calling card. 
Now, especially early in his ministry, the problem is people, people weren't getting it. They weren't, weren't understanding. Some people, they were just obsessed with the signs themselves. They identified Jesus as a miracle worker, and they were following him around kind of like it's a sideshow. They, they just, they wanted to see more wonders. They wanted more miraculous bread. Meanwhile, other people, they saw the signs and they did recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but they had in their minds this, this terrible misconception of the Messiah as merely a political deliverer. When they saw the signs of Jesus, and they were ready to anoint him as king and follow him on the march to overthrow Rome right then and there. Most people did not and could not yet understand he was meant to be a suffering servant, a crucified Messiah. So at times, Jesus thought it best to keep some of his biggest signs, those most prone to misinterpretation, under wraps until after the fact. Now, all that being said, here in Matthew 8, there's another reason, though, something else going on as to why Jesus is prescribing silence for this leper. There's more going on because you see how on the one hand, he says, tell no one. But then right after, he basically says, tell someone, tell a priest. He wants him to tell the priest. It's not like he's asking this leper to keep his healing a secret to the grave. No, Jesus wants this leper to tell of his healing only in very specific circumstances and for a very specific reason. So here's what's going on. Still living under the law, the man needed to follow the prescriptions of Leviticus 14 that he might be pronounced clean, that his social and religious stigma might be removed. He can re-enter society. We know from Matthew 5, Jesus came to fulfill, not to abolish the law of Moses. So he tells him to submit to the process of ceremonial cleansing. This man would have been inspected by a priest. If no leprosy would have been found, he would take two clean birds. One would be killed. The other would be dipped in its blood and then set free. The blood would then be sprinkled over the man seven times and he would be pronounced clean. That was the ceremony. But notice how Jesus says this ceremony was a testimony to them. It would function as a testimony to them, meaning the priests. That Jesus intended this healing to also serve as a sign to the religious leaders of Israel. And this further explains why he wanted the leper to tell no one. He was to depart immediately from Galilee to Jerusalem, go to the temple, tell no one of this healing so that the news of this healing would not get to the priests first. Because if they found out this man was healed by Jesus, they would not have recognized him as clean. At this point, already the priests would do nothing to lend support to Jesus. But as this man shows up, he's examined by the priests. He's pronounced clean. So the priests would be affirming his miraculous healing, which in turn means they would be affirming his miraculous healer. Unbeknownst to them, they would be authenticating one of the greatest signs of Jesus because the Jews believed only God could heal a leper. So after they authenticated this, this is from God. Then he says, oh yeah, by the way, Jesus healed me. They would be unwittingly, but still powerfully uh, testifying. Jesus is from God. Really, they'd be recognizing him as the Messiah because if you remember, what was what was the Messiah's calling card? Jesus says in Matthew eleven five, it looks like this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so Jesus here very shrewdly intends to now use this leper as his witness, both to testify to the priests of Israel and to get them to join in that testimony that Jesus really is the Christ and the Son of God. Because who else can do this? Who else can fix that which was broken? Who can clean that which was unclean? Only Jesus. Now with this, the text ends. Matthew doesn't even bother telling us what happened next. He immediately moves on to another record, a second miracle of Jesus. But of the nine miracles Matthew records, I don't think any reached the impact of this first one, mostly because of the powerful object lessons it contains. 
By no means do I doubt the historicity of this text. We believe this. This really happened. But at the same time, many of Christ's miracles had a second layer in that they also functioned as, as object lessons, as kind of like living parables or pictures of spiritual truth. And this is intentional. We're not reading this in. A famous example, you recall when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish. But right after that, what does he say? He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. Multiplying bread, yeah, that was a profound miracle, but he also intended it to communicate significant spiritual truth. And so we wonder here, what what might Jesus be communicating? I already told you the main point is about Jesus. This is to put on display his authority and his power. That's the main point. But, But I think to appreciate the impact of that point, you need to understand that we are meant to first identify with the leper. Really, spiritually before God, we are like the leper. It is not hard to see leprosy as being in Scripture throughout, like the perfect picture, the the near-perfect picture of our spiritual condition. Just think of the many ways our sin condition resembles the leper's condition. All humanity is infected by this disease called sin. It resides within us unseen, but it affects our entire being. What does it do to us? Well, we know the more it spreads, the more it kills our feelings. Sin deadens our affection for God and righteousness. And the more it overtakes us, it it disfigures us. We become spiritually grotesque to a pure and holy God. Sin is defiling, which also explains why sin is separating. Sin makes us profoundly unclean before God and which leads to our alienation. We are, we are exiled from the Garden of Eden. We are banished from his presence. Like Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The problem is that describes none of us. None of us are clean. Sin is so defiling, it even spoils our supposed good deeds. Would any Jew ever accept the product of a leper's hands? Never. Likewise, God has no regard for our supposed good deeds or good works. Like Isaiah says, Isaiah 64, 6, he says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So what are we to do? What can we do about this? Nothing. Sin is incurable. Like leprosy, it's a death sentence. We are dead men walking. It leaves us hopeless and doomed to die a second death. If we even saw God in our condition, the only thing we could say is what Isaiah said when he saw God's manifold holiness. Isaiah 6, 5, where he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He knew, I don't, I don't belong here. He's the holy, the pure, the clean one. I am unclean. I don't belong here. And when you think about this world and all that is wrong with it, you have to realize that you and me, like, we're part of the problem. We are, we are out of order. We are not right in our sin and rebellion against this God. This sounds depressing. It is depressing. Leprosy is depressing. Sin is depressing. But you know what would be really depressing is if Jesus saw that leper in his condition and then just left him there. Or if he came down to earth and saw us in our sins and then just did nothing about it. That would be really depressing. Then we would be without any hope. But that's not how the story ends, both this episode in Matthew's gospel. We know how how sin has spoiled the Father's creation physically and spiritually. But Jesus came to rescue us from that. How would he do that? Well, we also see a picture of that in this text, especially verse 3, where Jesus intentionally, and Matthew records intentionally how Jesus reached out his hand and touched that leper. Think again about this touch. There are two reasons no one touches a leper. First, physically, you don't want to become infected. 
And second, spiritually, you don't want to become unclean. Lepers were viewed as cursed by God. You don't want to be under the curse. And one touch would do it. But as you probably know, when Jesus touched that leper, that didn't happen. Jesus did not become unclean when he touched that leper. The leper's uncleanness did not transfer to Jesus. But rather, his cleanness transferred to the leper. Why? Just because of the the nature of the one who was touching him. With this touch, we see a picture of the Lord's condescension. And first, that he would even come down to earth. This Jesus is God the Son, sent by the Father into this fallen world, that he might identify with us sinners, unclean. Jesus did so, yet remained himself unstained by sin, because he is the holy and righteous one. And his righteousness and power is so great that that one touch has the power to erase sin, has the power to raise the dead, has the power to make lepers clean. With this touch, we see a picture of what Jesus would do to save us from our greater uncleanness. He would take it on himself. He would reach down, touch our uncleanness, take it upon himself, and giving us his cleanness in return. On the cross, Jesus bore the curse of sin, also that this, this great exchange might take place, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, He, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, Jesus really became like that leper, so to speak, in a manner of speaking, disfigured before God as he took on himself the disease of sin. He took on himself our sin, our guilt, our shame. He bore that burden in our place that we might be made clean. He died in our place. But then he rose from the dead, proving that his righteousness really is supreme. His work is finished and his authority is total. That this Jesus really is Lord and Savior. And so what a, what a picture we have here of sin and of salvation through our Lord, the Savior. And all that's left now is to see the picture of how you receive it. How you can be made clean before God, which is also pictured here in this leper. That you must approach Jesus the exact same way with this humble faith. This confidence without presumption. Like the leper, you, you must recognize your own pitiful condition. Because of your sin, you're under no illusion that you're good or clean or righteous before God. You, you see the depths of your depravity. And then when you see this holy God, you know you don't belong in his presence. Your sin makes you loathsome to him because he is holy. But like this leper, you've heard of some hope. This Jesus figure has come. He died. He rose. You know he's a compassionate savior. He does not turn the humble away. You know you're not entitled to anything from him, but his gift of salvation, you know you don't deserve. But you know he has the power to save you. He can make you clean. Just think back on your life of sin. Perhaps at times you have felt untouchable, consumed with with the guilt and the shame of all that you've done. And could God ever accept you? But see the grace of God in Christ who has come down. And so as you come to faith or trust in this Jesus, trusting in his person and his work, as you go to him, you run to him, you bow down in faith and cry out, he will hear you. Lord, if if you're willing, you, you can make me clean. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord, save me. Crying out, knowing he's able to save you, also know that he is willing. We know the Lord is sovereign in salvation, yet he promises to hear those who call to him, to never turn away from the humble who come to him with this leper's faith. Like it says in John 6, 37, he says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So so come to this same faith and then feel the Savior's touch. 
as you do, you'll look up, you'll find something has changed. You are new, made new, born again. You'll find yourself clean, no longer alienated from God, sent away, but restored, reconciled to God, united to his people, made clean. Receive this gift today. If you have not, I would would urge you and, and tell you to humble yourself before God, to confess your sin before him, and then to cry out to Jesus with this same faith. He will hear and restore. And after you do that, or for those who have done so, now you need to know that there's certainly no command for you to stay silent about it. Just the opposite. Now the Lord has commanded all who come to him to to tell others. But, you know, we don't really need to be commanded to do that, do we? Would any leper, upon being healed, be shy about telling others? Would would I keep that news to himself? And we, we want to naturally share good news. Do you have any greater news in your life than what the Lord has done for you? So, go now. Tell others what great things this Lord has done for you as you follow him on his way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we exalt you and praise you this morning for your word, which gives us such truth and words for life and pictures of the gospel. The focus is on Jesus. He is the Savior, the Lord of glory, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the Son of God who, who has come down, lived a perfect life, entered this unclean and defiled world. Though remaining unstained, he, he lived among us. But most importantly, he died on that cross, rising from the dead, to take all of our uncleanness upon himself. The only way things could be made right, such that we, we benefit. He did this for his glory, for your glory. May we now glorify him as we receive his gift, all by grace, all by faith. For any, as we pray often, for any who have not come to this level of faith or submission or trust in the Lord, humble and broken over their sins to do that now. You are the God who convicts. Use your spirit to convict them of their need, that they might see their uncleanness before you, but not despair. Have hope that there is a Savior who has come. They've heard about him this morning. May they go to him in faith and find new life. And indeed, for that, all of us who have and who trust and love this Savior, may, may we follow him. He has all authority. This is what he can do to fix this world. One day that will be complete. All first things will pass away. This world will be restored in perfect glory forever. May we busy ourselves, though, to thank him, to exalt him, to follow him, to tell others about him. Good news has come. May we not be silent, but tell the world about this great Savior. We praise you. Thank you for this truth this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.